This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. Bellacatering.com.au is where you can find them. They're one of Sydney's best catering companies. And since the absolute gargantuan shit show of 2020 has descended upon us like one of those spaceships in Independence Day and COVID-19 has changed our lives, these guys have pivoted from being one of the best face-to-face catering companies in all of Sydney to home delivery and creating just amazing stuff that you can order, you can take home, you can chuck in a freezer. Um, and it's why cook? If you're going to have people over, I know that it's tough to even like think of having people over. You got to worry about hand sanitizers and temperature checks. And does this person have a mask? And really is that relative of mine that clean? Do you want to invite them? Maybe you want to change it. Don't think about anything else except for that invite list. Order from Bella Catering. If you're in the greater Sydney area, they can help you. They're a great family business. They're part of our little family here at One Eight Minute Productions. Thank you for listening. Now, onto the show. I'm going to say one thing fuck Trump. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Uh, As part of these projects, I kind of have a bucket list of people that I want to talk to. And they're us, like, several individuals that are kind of the top tier of film criticism in the entire world. The man that I'm talking to right now has is friends of many people who've been on this show. And many of those friends have said, why haven't you got this guy on the show yet? And it has not been for lack of trying. It's just about timing. When you think of great film critics working, you think of this man. When you think of great film criticism texts and books coming up, you think of this man's work because he is tackling one of the sacred sex texts of cinema rather. And it's pretty incredible. And I can't wait to consume his new book, Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas. He's a writer at the New York Times and he writes for RogerEbert.com. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my distinct pleasure to welcome Glenn Kenny to all the President's Minutes. Glenn, thank you so much for doing the show. Thank you very much, Blake. I'm really pleased to be uh, speaking with you. Um, and I hope I- people uh, enjoy what we have to say and I hope they'll uh, look into reading my book. <laughs> all those things I, I, I'm sure are going to happen. I, I, I'm absolutely sure of it, in fact. Um, first and foremost, All the President's Men, and that now this is where I'm sort of learning now, is a text that is clearly important to you and a text that you clearly sort of reference. I finally read uh, uh, your, uh, on your own personal blog about um, Gordon Willis's. It's actually where I first heard about someone's opinion of what the transfer was for the Blu-ray about a botched HD transfer. And that was on your own coverage for the, for the actual Blu-ray. But um, uh, what's your relationship with all the president's men for folks who are listening? Because I now know that, you know, this, 
this movie has many teachable moments from doing the show and you're actually, you know, someone who teaches the, one of the, one of the essential scenes of this movie for, for craft, for performance, for everything. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a movie that, um, is, um, it kind of makes you sad when you think about it because I'm, uh, I turned 61 this year. Which oh, congratulations. 1976 when it came out, I was about 16. Uh, I remember I was in high school and I lived in uh, Lake Apakong in New Jersey, which was about an hour and 15, an hour and 30 minutes from New York City. And this was prior to um, multiplexes becoming, uh, you know, the, the theater that was in the mall that was about a half hour drive from my house, only had three movie houses total. Um, so, and movie theater, you know, big movies were released um, incrementally. They didn't go to thousands of theaters. Um, so All the President's Men was a picture that came out uh, in New York at first and only a few theaters. And I had this, um, English teacher, drama coach at my high school who did drive into the city to see it uh, on opening night or something like that. And I remember the kids in my class who were all very, um, you know, it was a drama oriented class, were very excited that he had seen it. And um, when he came back and talked about it, um, made us even more excited. And when you watch the film now, it's kind of difficult to reconcile yourself to the idea that in 1976, a huge mainstream movie. This was the sort of thing that Hollywood was known for doing. You know, All the President's Men is not a difficult film. It's not Tarkovsky or Alexei German or, um, you know, any anything along those lines in terms of really needing to really demanding. Um, it's 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 a it's it's a fleet movie that has a powerful story that's brilliantly acted, but it's also kind of conspicuously smart about a lot of different things at once and um, impeccably made. Not just the actors, but the uh, directing and cinematography and uh, the relationship between Gordon Willis and director Alan Pakula, Alan J. Pakula was close, very, very, very close uh, in terms of collaboration and yes. the amount of say that Willis had <clears throat> big movie this is a this is a water cooler movie it was a conversation movie and um it's also a really grown-up movie for lack of a better term so yeah. um and this was what got people excited and movies like that don't get people as excited as they used to which uh says something about filmmaking which says something about hollywood which says something about marketing culture all this stuff but whenever i watch it even on the blu-ray transfer which was indeed excoriated by Gordon Willis for having um, the inaccurate color values, but is, if you don't know what the accurate color values are, uh, it's for the layperson a, a relatively watchable in terms of detail. <laughs> it, it puts the movie across just because of what it has to say or the story it tells about uh, frightening and interesting chapter of American history, which I was a teenager and I lived through during that period. Nixon resigned on my 14th birthday, I think. Oh my um, goodness. Which was very exciting for me. I, I did not like Richard Nixon. I like him a lot better now. Um, <laughs> but um, so yeah, and, and you know, following the um, 
the book coming out and uh, all of these other things. It was, a, it was definitely a kind of a milestone. And um, this is one of those things where you can use the old cliche that your, you know, one's parents use when they are faced with something like Casablanca, which is a great <laughs> film of different kind of values. But uh, they don't make them like this anymore. They really don't. I mean, you could look at a film like Spotlight, and um, Spotlight's a um, well-regarded picture that um, you know was produced by people I'm friendly with. And Spotlight is, for all its virtues, not nearly as dynamic a motion picture as all the presidents met. Yes, uh, it's well put together and coherent. And it does, because of the emotional content of, this, of, of what's being investigated in the storyline, moving. But All the President's Men feels inspired every time you watch it, I think. It's an endlessly rewatchable film. Yeah, it's, and I think you nailed, just in talking about the collaboration, whether, whether it's Pakula in some wonderful interviews talking about his collaboration with his production designer and wanting to be connected to someone who had such an obsessive and inspired approach themselves the legendary relationship between he and Willis getting someone like Robert O. Wolf who's editor of the movie, like a, a Peckinpah protege, you know, out of the Peckinpah editing school sort of thing um, together because of how he can, his conflicting approach to editing. So having like a different voice to help sort of run their vision against um, that's what is striking me. The more that I learn about cooler is that he, he's a man of alchemy. Like he, he wants, he's, he's got his vision for his actors and how he wants the story to flow and a lot of tone and feeling, but you know, exactly like you said with spotlight, it's when you step into the bowels of that car park, there's no car park moments for me. And even in this scene, spotlight has a very flat, has a very flat tone the entire movie. And, and I think it's Lee Schreiber's character as the editor of the globe who, who kind of says like, take out those adjectives. We're going to take out the adjectives. And I think that that is sort of like definitive of the entire approach of spotlight. It's like they've taken out the the voice because like Pakula kind of gives Willis these times where, you know, in the newsroom, it's very flat. You can't, it's very dynamically shot, but there's not much you can do with the light, but anytime they're out, they really relish being in people's personal spaces and underground car parks and sprinting through the streets and all the, and, and, and just the clutter of Woodward's apartment, everything feels like this new really lived in space and it's all shot so wonderfully. That's what I think strikes me compared to spotlight. Like you said, very well-made film watchable, but not on an endless, endlessly rewatchable like this movie. As is the case with almost everything that Gordon Willis shot, yes, uh, it's a movie where the cinematography functions as a dynamic storytelling tool rather than merely a um, image creating uh, apparatus. Yes, uh, it's, it's it's an active eye, and um, it's interesting. You know, when Willis became a director, he couldn't quite make that work. <laughs> yes the same way he did as a cinematographer it is weird i think it's it's also that different filmmakers i i guess for folks who are listening who might not be as familiar what a cinematographer does on a traditional set of cinematographer um if you're just talking like pure function they're there to light the picture they're there to like bring uh, you know bring the tone to the movie but also just can also be a really functional job um and the greater the relationship between a cinematographer and a director the more that they're 
the director's exact vision and, and framing and knowing exactly where he wants to do, it works in companionship and they can actually have a dialogue. Or I know what you're trying to do here, but let's do something else. And you see it with really great, great, great directing and, and cinematographer relationships through the years. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I, I'm the guy who did one heat minute. So for me, I'm going to say Michael Mann and Dante Spinotti and some of their great films together um, as, as a sort of, sh- as my shorthand for two, two guys who can, who can do it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see when there is that genuine collab to like, we're going to push it. We're going to go farther. We're going to, we are going to make something unique here because later on and the example, my heartbreaking example is Ant-Man and the Wasp is the cinematographer is Dante Spinotti. And so the difference you see then with a director and a, and film form, what you actually have the choices rather than like the whole movies created in a computer, um, basically how they're going to do it. And then the, you know, they come on to shoot it in the day and they give him the lights that he needs to do to light it on a very functional perspective. Um, it's not like this where the whole tone and especially the scenes, this entire scene from the bookkeeper scene rolling now into this debrief scene between uh, Woodward and Bernstein, Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman that we're going to chat about. It's like the tone of those scenes is so important and how it's all lit and how, how the characters live in the space does so much to enhance the storytelling. Yeah, that sounds great. Let's have a look at it and see uh, what we're going to talk about. Absolutely. Guys, this is the 85th minute of Alan J. Pakula and Robert Redford's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men. In case that doesn't leap out at you or this is one of the first episodes you listen to, Glenn and I actually were in Bob Woodward's apartment. Carl Bernstein has been in this glorious scene with the bookkeeper played by Jane Alexander. She's given him, she's, he's eked out information over many hours. He's hyped up on coffee. He's jumping around the apartment and they're debriefing on just the details and trying to expand on some parts of what she's told them that she hasn't been able to be fully transparent on. So we get this wonderful scene where these guys have this exchange. So you guys are going to listen along. Glenn and I are going to watch it right now and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Like for four, Mitchell. I don't want a cookie. We've got to get that bookkeeper to say it was Magruder. Never get her to say anything but him. We've got to go back there and try to get her to say it. If we can make names of the initials, then we'll know the people that Creek will paid off the burglars. We'll at least know who got the money. The indictments that came down from the grand jury today stop with the five burglars, Hunt and Liddy. Carl, we have got to go back there and get that bookkeeper to say who the names are and not initials. Well, she ain't going to give it to you because I was with the woman for six hours. We're going to try. Could, well, then you're going to have to trick her, threaten her. She's not going to do it. Wait do a minute, wait a minute. You know what we could do? What? Uh, listen, we go back there. Yeah. And you ask her who P is. And then I say, no, 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 no. We know P is Porter. I just bury it. Porter. Okay, now wait a minute. I say to her, who is P? Right. And then you say to me. I say, no, we know P is Porter. You mean you try to fake her out? Right. And what if she denies it? Well, there it is, Glenn. What a yeah, wonderful the first thing that sort of stands out in that scene is that it's another scene that establishes or reestablishes or maintains the line of the theme of the differences of approach that uh, Bernstein and Woodward had. Yes. Uh, Something they, they do discuss in the book that they came from different backgrounds. They had different uh, areas of interest. Bernstein was kind of a, a not quite lost soul at the Washington Post, but a bit of a journeyman. He did um, he did concert reviews. Uh, Woodward and and Woodward's Woodward's persona to this day uh, remains this kind of waspy, Ivy League, meticulous, uh, Uber reporter. 
Um, and <laughs> you have this, you know, you have Bernstein being very high energy, but also being kind of sloppy, having notes on well, matchbooks and pieces of paper that are not very well organized. And, uh, you know, Woodward is the guy perpetually with the legal pad and the typewriter nearby. And um, very impulsive, but also very easily frustrated. So he feels like he's exhausted every possible line of attack in terms of getting um, Judy Hoback to uh, speak uh, to them, to reveal things to them. Whereas Woodward is, no, we, we got to find a strategy. So the emphasis on this scene in this scene is their, uh, their contrast as people, as professionals, but also their ability to put their heads together and collaborate on an idea. Yes. And this scene is in between two scenes which feature the great uh, actor Jane Alexander as, as the committee member Judy Hoback. And the scene where Hoffman, Wood, a Bernstein character, first goes to her house is, is one of the best uh, examples of how Willis, when Hoback is resistant to even speaking to Bernstein, he kind of wheedles his way into the house by asking the sister for a cigarette. There's all these physical barriers between them in the shot, uh, the screen door at first. And then when she's in the other room and he goes into the living room, Willis frames all their shot reverse shots so that the um, the stamp banister. Yeah. Yes. So this is, you know, um, this is, you know, and this is not unlike the way that Roman Polanski would frame a doorway in Rosemary's Baby when Ruth Gordon is going into a bedroom to make a telephone call and he frames the doorway in such a way that the audience who's dying to know what Ruth Gordon is going to say almost cranes their neck as if to try and peer around that bedroom door, you know. And, <laughs> you are put in the position of Bernstein wanting this information so badly that you're peering through those uh, dowels in the uh, staircase to, to see um, Judy Hoback. Uh, and then after this scene, when Woodward and Bernstein go to confront Hoback again, we're out in the open. It's on a front porch. She's got uh, the iced tea, uh, but she's still very resistant in this song. You know, the way the trees are shading the porch almost encloses them to a certain extent. So, you know, this is all a depiction of their art as investigative reporters. Yes. Um, and, um, and, that it, they- and that it is an art. Like there's something so great as like uh, in, in a couple of the preceding minutes to, uh, to, to you and I just talking, one of the key ideas that's come out from a number of the conversations is like, this is such a beautiful scene for Bernstein as a character in this film and Hoffman's performance as Bernstein because of the way that we've seen him have be high energy. We've seen him be manic. We've seen him be blustery and a bit of a, a bit of a blowhard and like pushing into Dardis's office and sort of demanding information. Otherwise he's going to print without his comment, etc. And then you see him realize almost in real time in this wonderful way that that is not the approach that is going to get him what he needs in that previous bookkeeper scene. He must adopt a much more, slow and sort of very Woodward eking out gentle probing of uh, Judy Hoback slash the bookkeeper played by Jane Alexander, because if he doesn't, he's going to lose her. Like there is such a delicate knife edge that he's on. And so watching him sort of adopt that. And similarly later, we get a great scene where uh, Bob Woodward like feels like he's, 
turns into Bernstein. He, he, you know, he like he starts asking people these no BS questions. But I love, I love this scene we're talking about because it's the beginning of like now this informs every other scene that they have for the rest of the movie and that they're thinking about the strategy of every scene and how they act between one another for the rest of the movie. And it's just a great subtle touch because it like establishes it. And then because of Bakula's terrific direction and the script, they don't have to say it again. They don't have to reinforce it again. It just, they're just doing it for the rest of the movie. It's happening. When Woodward goes in, he's the one who delivers the whammy punchline of the whole exchange, which I won't reveal here because I don't want to spoil it for the person who's doing the next minute, but that's um, the structuring is quite brilliant. Another thing you notice about this scene, but also in the scenes that bookend uh, this scene is the way the cuts are, are made. Um, it's not a fast, these aren't fast cutting scenes, but when the scene does cut, the cuts are hard. Yes. They're not um, soft cuts. They're, 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 they have a, uh, a hardness to them that um, feels like the movie's punching through these narrative um, these narrative components and just sort of it's like it's like it's like a type press setting down line. boom 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 every cut is a boom <laughs> uh, despite the whatever the duration of the shot that it's cutting from the cut itself is a boom it's not. It, it, it parses in terms of shot, reverse shot, but it happens in such a way that it feels like, like a, a, a stamp has been, uh, has been uh, laid down very hard. And that's important to the momentum of the film and of keeping the viewer feeling like the stakes are very high. So these guys are here, they're doing the, they're, uh, they're talking back and forth. I love, both of these scenes and, and, you know, there's been a bit of debate, but I think it's sort of defunct at this point about uh, Bill Goldman's actual participation in the script. Like uh, I think there was a great internet boffin who uh, discovered that it's like 90% of, or 80% of the script is actually Bill Goldman's. But I think this is a Bill, a great Bill Goldman written scene because there's a music it feels like there's a music to his scene. I think, it, and, and that tempo, that boom, boom, boom of those cuts and, and the, and the sort of rapier like way that these guys are going back and forth with the dialogue. It feels like a great Bill Goldman scene because they're just going at it, at it, at it, at it, at it and speaking quickly, strategizing quickly, thinking quickly and, and going through their own emotional roller coaster in the space and in the scene. But this is not the scene that you teach, which is what I'm also very interested in going through. So I really would love if we could, uh, uh, we could cheat slightly. We're allowed to go back. We're not spoiling anyone. They've had their chance already, but I'd love to, to talk about this scene in the context of your, your most teachable scene of this movie, which is the Ken Dahlberg call, call which is a seven minute unbroken take, which I show with some, um, matter before it. It's, you know, every year that I teach it is another year that I have to, explain Watergate uh, <laughs> more detail than I did the year before. But uh, most, most kids are aware of Nixon. Um, the thing about that, and uh, it came out in an interview that uh, Steven Soderbergh did with Gordon Willis, is that this idea, this scene, yielded an actual invention by Gordon Willis, which some people, including Soderbergh, still have in their camera kits today. Um, the scene is a seven minute take of Woodward um, getting on the phone with a uh, 
actually gave a, a, a check for $25,000 to Maurice Sands that ended up in the coffers of the fund that hired the Watergate burglars. It's the yes. smoking call. And this call happens on the same day that Thomas Eagleton, the um, running mate of George McGovern, resigns because of um, revelations concerning his mental health. Yes. And it takes place, again, you talk about the flat lighting in the newsroom. So much of the movie takes place in this flatly lit newsroom. But two things are happening in the scene. One is on television, Eagleton is announcing his resignation. And the other thing is in his cubicle, Redford is making this call, this frantic call, where he has to put someone else on hold, call someone else, hang up, call someone else, and then finally get the smoking gun information he needs. The Eagleton story. I believe, I believe the line just before we get to the Eagleton story is, "I'm not sure if I should be saying this, or I don't know yeah. how much I should tell you." One of those great lines. That's that's Dahlberg. I'm not Dahlberg. sure if I say this, and then he says, "Yeah, and then all <laughs> I need is kidnapped," which is which was happening. So on the left side of the screen, this is on the television, and all the other reporters in the newsroom are yeah. blocking around the television to watch. The only one who's not going apparently teams is Woodward and and the camera's doing a, a short dolly maybe about four feet into a medium close-up it'll resolve on a, a medium close-up of, of, of Redford but as it's doing that short dolly Willis and Bakula want to keep everybody's eye on the left side of the screen because that's where everybody in the newsroom thinks the story is and they're going to turn out to be wrong yes so how do you you know with you, you have focal Focus pulling, you have diopters, but parts of the picture in focus while you're moving the camera. Yes. And what Gordon Willis did was he came up with a gizmo where he had a diopter putting in front of the lens that he would manually operate that focus while Dolly in on Redford. And if you watch the scene carefully, it's actually somewhat imperfect because the uh, fluorescent lights uh, and the ceiling of the newsroom are in slightly sharper focus on the left portion of the screen. There's a pillar dividing the two portions of the screen. But this is a perfect example of storytelling using only cinematography. It's the most important dimension. But the other dimension of the scene is how everybody else had their eye on the wrong ball. Yes. And Willis came up with this incredibly ingenious idea to visually convey this. Now, uh, the interview, which is on Steven Soderbergh, um, Willis comes in with this contraption and he lays out the shot to Pakula and Willis's assistant cameraman says, I can't do this. They didn't want to do it. They didn't know if it would work or they were whatever. And Willis fires the guy and he, yeah. operates, um, he operates the sliding diopter himself. But I, I teach this scene because, A, it's an incredibly engaging and absorbing scene, even um, out of context to a certain extent. And also, because it, it, as an example of purely visual storytelling, it's kind of uh, unparalleled. And um, my students get a lot out of it. They really do. And they get a lot out of seeing what a sliding diopter looks like. There's a picture that Steven Soderbergh was kind enough to furnish me of uh, the sliding diopter he had in his camera kit for side effects. And um, I don't know how many of my students have actually 
tried to follow the example and use this as an idea or a, an actual tool in one of their own films, but it certainly is eye-opening. It's a kind of a film language uh, lesson that is uh, something really important and, and exciting, you know? It's, you know, you don't, a lot of people don't think of all the president's men as a visually dynamic movie, but there are very few vi movies more visually dynamic than this because of the ingenuity of the cinematography on display in, in nearly every single shot of the film. And it's it's also a movie that doesn't necessarily get thought of in, in those terms because of the authenticity of the storytelling, right? So the, the constraints of authenticity mean that you don't get to, there's sort of a, a burden that you must fulfill to be authentic first and then artistic second. But I think that that's what's so ingenious about that, particularly the scene that you're talking about, which is they are doing the things that are happening. They've found the, a dramatic moment. And, and although in real life that happens over, you know, several days, they've done this beautiful moment of condensing, just like in the bookkeeper scene, you know, we see eight minutes for six hours, but it feels like six hours. It may as well be six hours, right? The way that it's shot, um, it gives you that same sense of, you know, time passing and questions being unanswered but it's just there is just nothing more visually exciting to me than that like some of the close-ups in this movie and exactly that like the 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 wherewithal to say here's what's happening this story's over here and for these people it's big news and and to keep you in sync with how these events are playing out and then eventually um and I think it was Jason Bailey who was a guest on the show and actually got to talk about the moment. He calls that the tip of the Dolberg is, uh, is something that he coined on this show. And he, and, he, and he said the tip of the Dolberg because he goes, after this movie, we, we can kind of excise those things that are happening on the side because these other distractions, we see it many times leading up to that moment. He goes, but once that Dolberg happens and hits that smoking gun and the cinematography is helping you understand how important it is, it almost strips away that secondary focus. It's like there are no secondary focuses now, except for Nixon in the foreground being reelected. Um, it, is, it is this story. This is the important one. Everyone else, you're wrong. But now it's a turning point. And, and this, particularly this scene, is the next phase of the layers of all of the sort of corporate, oh, sorry, um, political malfeasance that's going on in all of these, uh, uh, these organizations. And when you talk about uniting the artistic with the realistic or the verisimilitude, I think that's also, uh, and being inspired. That's a thing that um, Scorsese and Michael Bauhaus and Thelma Schoonmacher uh -huh. were with Goodfellas. Yes. Another example. I think that, uh, all the president's men and Goodfellas might make a, a good double feature just because of the idea of, of taking real life material and being relatively true to it, but also infusing it with a, an excitement that only happens with, with a, an artistic and artistically inspired treatment of that material. Yes. And, and, and that, and it's like that, that, that unbelievable thing that like, you know, it happens in multiple cases in this movie of just visual invention. It's like them picking the shot that, uh, that happens in the Library of Congress, like to decide to do that and how iconic that is. And it feels like for a movie that doesn't get necessarily lumped in as an artistic movie as in Presidents, um, and that, that's the inverse with Goodfellas because there are so many scenes that have been so liberally ripped off 
<laughs> like and riffed upon in almost every movie that followed it um, after Goodfellas. But um, Presidents has got that great Library of Congress scene. They've got this great scene. They've got the underground car parking scene. It's like those, all these things are happening. And that uh, commitment to authenticity is also part of it because, you know, for folks who are listening, you might not immediately know the name Judy Hoback um, or Judy Hoback Miller as Glenn does. And I, because obviously Glenn is teaching this movie uh, to students, but it's, that's the real life name of the bookkeeper. And they shot this scene in her house. They went to this person's house and shot it in there. So it's, it's not only is the authenticity of the movie there, it's when Gordon Willis and Alan J. Pakula get into that space together with their actors, they actually see what is there in the layout and then, and then design those iconic shots of like these two people behind these staircases that make them look like they're imprisoned and then perhaps that they're free um, afterwards. And it's that, that's also what's even more exciting. It's like, no, they go into these real spaces and they're finding the artistry and they're being inspired. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a charged film. Yes. <laughs> these guys, Redford, Hoffman, I mean, I think, I think also there's a, by the time we get to something like Goodfellas, um, Scorsese's got his, his crew of guys. And one thing I love about Goodfellas on, on a recent rewatch is I just love all of the, all of the character actor faces that occupy Goodfellas bring me a great deal of comfort, whether it's just, they're just, they're so unique. They're so them, they're so for that space. And it feels like, um, even, I don't know how all the presidents manages to do it. Um, but it's like, although these are big capital M movie stars, these two guys, especially in the scene that we're talking about, seem to go, seem to be able to disguise themselves, disguise their personas in plain sight to be these real reporters on the screen. And I think that that's a really fascinating thing. It also has to do with the rhythm they establish between themselves. And that kind of helps as well. The great thing about um, the writing too, and I think that, you know, both actors quite possibly made sure that everything they were saying felt comfortable coming out of their mouth. Woodward's wheedling of uh, Jane Alexander's character is kind of the ultimate Dustin Hoffman, oh, come on scene without him ever saying, oh, come on. So come on, <laughs> he doesn't ever do that, but he might as well be. Yes. But, uh, you know, that's, and that's very Hoffman, you know? Um, so, you know, he, um, he makes Bernstein his own. Yes, and 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 uh, and obviously Woodward in in those scenes. There's there's a really terrific little interview. I played a clip of it in episode seventy six for folks who want to go back and listen to it. I might link it in the description here um, uh, of this show with Pakula talking about these guys. And he said the first time they screened the movie for Robert Redford's wife, um, actually, she said there's sometimes where he stops walking like my husband and he walks like Bob Woodward. And so I think that there's something understated going on there is that these guys, you know, by, by design, by, by that sort of osmosis being around the, uh, the, the real Bernstein and Woodward during the production of this movie, they definitely got some of that essence, you know, and they're throwing it up on screen and differentiating their, themselves from, 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 from their movie star personas uh, classically to, to these guys as well. I think that's, that feels like the most, you know, subtle, but very kind of like uh, deliberate ways to delineate yourself from, from these characters here. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think Redford's been given sufficient credit as an actor. Um, I remember going back to 1976, <laughs> high school drama teacher saw the film and he said, well, I uh, often forgot that Redford was Redford, and that's the highest compliment I can give him. And, you know, <laughs> uh, that's fine. I mean, 
It reminds me of what people, you know, uh, Harry Carey Jr. used to say about people's characterizations of John Wayne. Actually, you know, he's he's never played a movie star who lives in Beverly Hills. Um, <laughs> Redford uh, Redford has often played, uh, you know, these kind of uh, icy wasp characters. And I don't think that's necessarily a reflection of who he is. Um, you know, he's he's a he's an enigmatic person, but uh, he's he's got he's got he's got from some accounts a, a fieriness to him that doesn't line up necessarily with um, the reserve that people associate with him because of his good looks. But I do think that um, he's well suited. That kind of you know his look and his manner is well suited to uh, a portrayal of Woodward. Uh, and frankly, he's quite a bit more charismatic uh, than the real life Woodward, for sure, because that's what movie stars do. <laughs> uh, with, with Hoffman and the actual Bernstein, I mean, Bernstein always strikes me as kind of a character. In yes. a way that doesn't. Yes. Uh, and I think our mutual friend, I, I'm bringing this up as much as I can, our mutual friend, Sean Burns, recently tweeted out the CNN article written by Carl Bernstein, and he pointed out, he goes, look at this guy. Still doing the thing, writing 109 word leads to stories. Uh, a recent Bernstein story. He's still, still a fiery guy in a way that I think Woodward hasn't maintained that sort of fiery, uh, uh, sort of bluster. Well, I mean, Woodward has his brand, which is you know very very strong in terms of um, allowing him access, and he just does what he does for every administration without fail. Um, whereas Bernstein has kind of, um, working on, on this, uh, case and working on those books really opened him up and he's become a writer who's more philosophical. He has, in a sense, his range is wider than Woodward. You wouldn't expect Woodward to write a biography of one of the Pope's books. Yes. Curiosity about ideas and religion and things like that, that Woodward absolutely if he has it, keeps keeps to him, keeps him private. Well, Glenn, um, I just want to thank you so much for coming on to the show and thank you for having the chat. And it's really nice to talk to a, a person who has a, an affinity for obsession and uh, clearly someone who's writing about Goodfellas and writing a whole book on it um, is, uh, is it's exciting to talk to you. Um, so thank you again. Um, and, uh, and uh, yeah, it's just been a real treat and, uh, definitely one of my final uh, bucket list people to get on this show and all, or one of the one heat minute productions. It's exciting to talk to you. So, uh, thank you so much. I had a great time. Uh, I know you're doing different people for every minute, but next film you do have me on for one of those minutes. I would love that. Thank you so much, Glenn. And that movie is funnily enough, uh, probably going to happen at the end of the year. I'll say it for this show. Cause I know a lot of people might be listening. Uh, that next film that's going to get a bigger treatment is going to be Zodiac, uh, which, which is in, uh, uh, has a connection to this film because William Goldman, one of his uh, mentees, one of his protégés, uh, we've talked about one of, uh, I think we maybe have mentioned Aaron Sorkin. We've maybe mentioned David Fincher on this show as a, as a, as a Goldman uh, guy. Um, and that also is scored by David Shire and has been called by the great and dearly departed Roger Ebert the all the president's men of serial killer movies. So um, we'll, uh, we'll be diving into that one uh, is the next big one. I'll make sure I'm ready. Thank you so much. Wow. That was the incredible Glenn Kenny. 
He is just so insightful and wise and awesome. I could chat to Glenn all day. Um, if you want to follow Glenn, it's at Glenn double underscore Kenny. His first name is spelled G-L-E-N-N. His book, which I just am salivating to get a copy of, Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas, is coming on September 15th. So in about a month's time, um, uh, I know if you're in Oz and you're listening to this, um, I think we can only pre-order, strangely enough, uh, on Amazon.com, the audiobook. But um, I-, I would just seek that out by any means necessary. Glenn, you're a legend. I really appreciate it. So, guys, um, uh, if you check the description here, I'll put a link to where you can uh, seek out the book in all its formats uh, on Amazon.com in the US. So you can check that out. Um, thank you so much for listening to the show, guys. Thank you so much for supporting One Heat Minute Productions. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, it's at ATPMPod. I am at one Blake minute on the socials, which is not the Facebook, but absolutely on Twitter and on Instagram. If you want to reach out to the show, mail at oneheatminute.com. And right now we know you're doing it tough. So if you can't support us monetarily by joining our Patreon, where you get a bonus episode of, the, um, of a brand new podcast, Rowan Rant, every single week, um, you can just subscribe, rate, review. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening. We'll have another amazing episode, another amazing guest coming up for you tomorrow. Take it easy. Take care of yourselves. See you soon.